Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Now, we're in part four of this uh, Journey of Faith series, but today, Joshua chapter 8, while you're turning there, Mr. Sherman set the Wayback Machine for 1962 when Neil Sedaka famously sang, Breaking Up is Hard to Do. Actually, if I recall, it was actually down, doobie, doo, down, down, comma, comma, down, doobie, doo, down, down, breaking up is hard to do, I think. I don't know. So what else is hard to do? How about standing up, speaking up, fessing up, being stored up, prayed up, paid up? What about catching up, making up for what's lost? You see, regaining lost ground is always difficult. You know, for that that football team that falls way behind, or for the student that that, uh, procrastinates way too long, or that young couple that spends way too much money, Well, catching up is hard to do. But guess what? That was actually true for the Israelites in Joshua's day, but it's also true for us as Christians today. I want you to consider this old adage. There are three men who deserve no pity. The unsecured creditor, the henpecked husband, and the man who will not try again. Why? Because they got nobody to blame but themselves. A very admirable quality in Christians, I think, is their desire to try again. We often seek to live for God and to to depend on His power and His strength. And, well, then again, sometimes we tend to rely on our own. And when we do that, ultimately, we're going to stumble. We fail from time to time. We experience defeat. But when we fail, well, it's just time to try again. And that's what today's study is all about. Joshua chapter 8 teaches us four principles for regaining lost ground. And really the big idea behind Joshua chapter 8 is that no matter our past defeats, we can experience victory by depending on God's plan for us. Now, if you were here last week, then you already know the historical context for today's passage. The Israelites had just suffered a devastating defeat at the uh, hands of the people of Ai. But then here in chapter 8, God's sending them right back. So look at uh, Joshua chapter 8, verse 1, if you would. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Take all the troops with you and go and attack Ai. Look, I have handed over to you the king of Ai, his people, city, and land. Then verses 2 through 29 in detail uh, give us the account of the rematch with the people of Ai. And we're actually going to fill in some of those gaps in the narrative as we go along. This time, the outcome was radically different. The enemies of God were vanquished. Now, I want you to look now at verse 30, if you would. Joshua 8, verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, the God of Israel, just as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded the Israelites. 
He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used. Then they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings on it. There on the stones, Joshua copied the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the Israelites. All Israel, resident, alien, and citizen alike, with their elders, officers, and judges, stood on either side of the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Half of them were in front of, the Mount, uh, in front of Mount Gerizim and half in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded earlier concerning blessing the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read aloud all the words of the law, the blessings as well as the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read before the entire assembly of Israel, including the women, the dependents, and the resident aliens who lived among them. Okay, so four steps to regaining lost ground that we find in today's text. All right, here's the first one. Recall God's plan. Look at verse 1 again. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Take all the troops with you and go and attack Ai. Look, I have handed over to you the king of Ai, his people, city, and land. Now, how many times already have we seen in the book of Joshua where God told Joshua not to fear? In fact, you know, the, the first chapter of the book of Joshua, like the first eight or nine verses, three different times, God tells him, be very strong and courageous. Three different times. And now he's, he's saying it again. And it's more important now than ever that the Israelites heed God's word. God had promised them victory in this rematch with the city of Ai. But according to God's instruction here in verse one, that meant a couple of things. First of all, it meant no fear. Now, did you know in the Bible the command do not fear or fear not, some variation of that, appears 365 times? So what does that tell us? <laughs> it tells us there's no need to fear. Well, the Israelites had sinned, as we saw last week, and that sin really led to, to fear. Maybe fear of loss or fear of further defeat maybe fear of God's wrath. And so the people, understandably, were a bit hesitant to continue their attempt to capture the promised land. But that failure at I actually produced in them a lack of confidence. And Achan's story, the one that we studied last week, shows us that, that sin can bring a, a, a fear of, of loss. Uh, it can bring lost confidence into our lives. So his story taught us that through confession and correction, we can claim the renewed power of God in our lives after defeat. So there's your, your review of, of last week. But here in chapter 8, God gives them this plan. And that plan hinged on their willingness to live by faith, not fear. I mean, isn't it always that way? So let me ask you, Christian, what is it that you're afraid of? Failure? Loss of control? Not being heard? Rejection by the world? Rejection by other Christians? 
what other people might think of you? Did y'all know that each and every one of you has an emotional control cord? Yeah, obviously that's not a literal thing, it's, it's metaphorical. You see, whatever you anchor your control cord to affects your emotional state. And what happens is that we often, we let the actions or words of, of other people or other things take emotional control from us. We willfully give control to something or someone else. For example, that, that overdraft notice comes in the mail. Well, we allow that to create worry in our minds. We get upset when a driver out on I-30 cuts us off. I mean, we just, sometimes we get enraged. And so what we have done is we have taken our emotional control cord and we have just lassoed that other driver out on the interstate, giving him complete control over our emotions. We're giving our control of our feelings to, to something or someone else. You know, another person, you know, maybe even another Christian, gasp, opposes us or says something unkind. What do we do? We lasso them with that emotional control cord. Yeah! So I didn't actually practice that in front of a mirror in case you're wondering. It was just it was totally spontaneous. Now, what do we do? We give them control of our emotions. We relinquish control of our feelings to somebody else. And what we're doing is we're granting them rent-free space right between the ears. Why? Because we're afraid of what other people think. Of course, if that's you, my counsel to you is stop. Anchor your emotional control cord to Jesus. See, your self-image should not be based on man's opinion of you. It should be based on God's love for you. So walk in confidence, knowing that the only person whose opinion of you truly matters is God. Don't let your emotions rule you. Then you can think and speak and act like a victor, not a victim. Paul said in Romans 8, 37, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, you probably remember 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul instructing the church at Corinth to walk by faith, not by sight. I think what happens sometimes is, is we let the, the, the sight or sights uh, distract us, keep us from obeying God. We let sight turn to fear or doubt. I, th I think sometimes as Christians, we just need like, you know, some sort of emotional or spiritual blinders, you know, to, to block out all the world's distractions. And that way we can just fix our gaze on, on Jesus. But unfortunately, it's not always that way. We let sight turn to fear, doubt. That's why Paul said to walk by faith. We trust God's plan. So recalling God's plan for victory instead of defeat means that not only should there be no fear, but it also means there should be no discouragement. Now, we can only imagine the disheartening effect of that failure at I in chapter 7. You know, those people who had reveled and that amazing victory at the city of Jericho now wallowed in defeat at the town of Ai. 
I mean, good grief, it's kind of like the Arkansas Razorbacks opened up a big old can of whooping on BYU and Auburn only to get beat by Liberty? Come on, man. Hey, God reminded his people that his plan would bring victory. And in verses 2 through 29, we find that God instructed the Israelites to take the entire army. Okay, not, not just 2,000 or 3,000 like they did before. The entire army to I. So everyone was involved. Nobody was left out. Now, one group prepared an ambush and they lay in wait. Another group prepared a fake retreat so that the people of I would be convinced that once more the Israelites were running scared. And this would draw the people of Ai out of the city. And so the men of Ai actually fell for the ruse as they pursued the fleeing army. The once hidden Israelite soldiers entered and torched the vacant city of Ai. It was destroyed completely and the men of Ai were defeated. I got to say, I find it really interesting that God would take them back to the very place that the Israelites last experienced defeat in order to restore their confidence. Okay, but how were the people of Ai defeated? Faith, not sight. You see, we are to be able to, to be governed rather by our, uh, our trust in Him. We're not governed by our, our, our feelings, feelings of doubt, feelings of fear, discouragement, rejection, aloneness. We shouldn't be ruled by our feelings. One of my favorite uh, artists, uh, Josh Wilson, he wrote a song, great lyric in there. He said, but when I don't feel you moving, that doesn't mean you've disappeared. And when I don't feel you with me, oh God, that doesn't mean you're not here. So I keep on believing because faith is not a feeling. Church, faith is a choice. A choice to trust in Him and not in ourselves. It's basically saying, God, you are bigger than anything else I will ever face. So God said to Joshua and the Israelites, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged there in verse 1. And guess what? He's saying it to us too. No matter our defeats, we can experience victory by depending on God's plan for us. All right, so to regain lost ground, we must first recall God's plan. Here's the second thing. Rejoice in God's provision. Celebrate what God has done on your behalf. Express your gratitude for it. Give him props for the victory that he has granted you. There's a pastor named Michael Quillen. Uh, he pastors in Philadelphia. I came across this story that he wrote. He says, I, I met my wife, Julia, at a Bible study where 30 to 40 people gathered every Friday night to sing, break into small groups, and then come together for fellowship afterwards. And I became one of the regular musicians in the group. I played an old guitar and was beginning to think about a new one. A friend of mine in the Bible study had two nice guitars, and he lent me one. It was the nicest guitar I had ever played. I cherished it as if it were a newborn child. I, I was single after all. 
I was careful not to bang it into things. I gently wiped down the strings and the body after playing. I tenderly placed the guitar in its velvet-lined case. I worried about things such as humidity of the room where the guitar was kept. I borrowed this guitar for months and was thinking of buying it. Meanwhile, Julia and I became engaged. One day as our wedding approached, Julia said, that guitar is yours. I bought it for you weeks ago as an early wedding present. My first reaction was ecstasy. The most beautiful guitar I had ever played was mine. My second reaction was relief. Since the guitar was mine, I could stop babying the thing. I didn't have to treat it so gently or, or clean it so carefully. But then, Julia got me. Isn't it really God's? Shouldn't you take good care of it like you did when it was yours, but you didn't think it was? Boom! Mic drop! You know, here's the point of that story. The point is that we cannot take God's provision for granted. Always rejoice in His gift. Be thankful for those gifts and give God the worship that He is due. Just like the ancient Israelites, we have cause to rejoice in God's provision. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Paul in Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He told the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make every grace overflow to you. So that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. And of course you recall what, what David said in Psalm 23.1, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. So rejoice in His provision. Or as the old song says, count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. All right, so to regain lost ground, we must first recall God's plan. We rejoice in His provision. Here's the third thing. We remember God's praise. After that victory at Ai, the Israelites came to a place called Shechem. It lay in a valley between two mountains, the rugged, rocky Mount Ebal and the wooded and beautiful Mount Gerizim. And they, the time came for them to stop and, and to worship. I mean, verse 31 says the first thing they did in response to the victory that God gave them was to worship. It says they built an altar and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. So their response to God's goodness was worship. Now, what exactly is worship? Okay, now we talked about this at length in a sermon back in the fall called Worthy Worship. If you weren't here that Sunday, go to YouTube. You can watch it there. But very simply put, worship is a recognition of God for who He is, coupled with an appropriate demonstration of awe or praise or thankfulness or celebration. See, the Bible says that God inhabits the praises of His people. So, for us as New Covenant believers in Christ, worship is meant to be a sacrifice, but a sacrifice of 
praise. It's an offering that we give to God. And it's our job to make sure that it is a worthy offering because he is a worthy God. And, and not give him some sort of, you know, go through the motions, half-hearted attempt at worship. Now, in the case of the Israelites and the Old Covenant, their natural response to a recognition of God's goodness was worship through offerings upon the altar. They were rejoicing in God's protection and in his provision. And so, Joshua led God's people in worship. They built an altar according to Moses' specifications. They offered sacrifices as a sign of their thankfulness to God for his victory. But you know something, church? Even though we have a tendency to cry out to God in the, the midnight of our desperation, sometimes it's far too easy to just kind of uh, eh, set him to the side in the light of victory. It's easy, even tempting, to start celebrating after a victory and at some point forget who is ultimately responsible for it. Now, when, when our kids were just a little bit younger, the family would gather together at Thanksgiving and we had a white tablecloth. And each year we would take permanent markers and we would write on that white tablecloth all the things that we were thankful for that year. And it produced some pretty interesting responses, you know, uh, food, family, football, uh, laughter, etc. But you see, ultimately for Thanksgiving to actually be Thanksgiving, we had to acknowledge the one who had granted the objects of our thankfulness. I think it's for excuse me, I think it's far too easy to recognize at the Thanksgiving table everyone and everything except the one who really deserves our worship. So we give praise where praise is due. All right, so to regain lost ground, we must first recall God's plan, rejoice in God's provision, remember God's praise. Now here's the fourth one. Renew your promise. Joshua remembered during the celebration and sacrifices to give some attention to God's word. Verse 32 says, there on the stones, Joshua copied the law of Moses. Then in verse 34, Joshua read aloud all the words of the law to all the people. Why? I mean, what was the point of a public reading of God's word? Well, I think the actions of Joshua and the Israelites, you know, that, uh, they were a symbol, a symbol of their renewed commitment to God. It was kind of a, a spiritual marker in their lives. You know, oftentimes in the Old Testament, after a momentous movement of God, you would see people raise their, their Ebenezer. Okay, now, if you were raised in the church, you probably heard that term a zillion times. There's no telling how many times you, you sang the old 18th century hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. I sang that thing for a long time before I actually asked the question, what's an Ebenezer? What does it mean? What in the world? Well, an Ebenezer is actually a memorial stone. In fact, the word Ebenezer means stone of help. And so for the Israelite people, it was a tangible reminder of the Lord's power and protection. 
So in the Old Testament, it was not uncommon to see God's people building an altar of memorial stones to commemorate his commitment to them. But then here in Judges chapter 8, this proclamation of God's word was a symbol of their renewed commitment to him. Yes, it was a sort of spiritual marker in their lives. Now, I think maybe a, a better a contemporary symbol of, of commitment would be, uh, well, you see couples who've been married 35, 40 years. They stand before their friends and they renew their promise. They renew their wedding vows. They're reiterating that pledge that they made so long ago to love, honor, and cherish. And they're pledging to do it forever. Folks, that's commitment. That's being fired up. That's being all in. Now, I'll give you a great illustration of being all in. Just think of the last time you had a breakfast of bacon and eggs. Okay, now the chicken was involved, but the pig was committed. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Do you want to regain lost spiritual ground in your life? Then go all in. Renew your promise to him. You know, when you first came to know Christ, you vowed to give him all your life, all the rest of your life. But are you still making good on that promise? Now, I want to offer you one caveat here. I will say this. Beware the rededication cycle. You see, lots of times we stray away from God. We realize I'm not walking in your will, Lord. And so we decide to rededicate ourselves to God. But I think rededicate's actually a bit of a misnomer. It, it, it somehow implies that, that I can fix the situation through my own efforts. But you know, what happens after a while, you know, trying to accomplish things on our own, through our own strength, our own wisdom, things start to fall apart. We begin to stray again. We recognize that we've strayed out of God's will. What do we do? We rededicate again. Folks, when we experience defeat, usually because we're not walking in God's will, what we need isn't so much rededication as it is a renewed surrender to the leadership and the power of the Holy Spirit. So renew your promise to God, but do so understanding that it's His strength that enables you to keep that promise. Remember the big idea. No matter our past defeats, we can experience victory by depending on God's plan for us. So the Israelites were able to regain ground that they had lost. But what exactly is our regained ground? You know, some people will read Joshua 8 and they'll see the, the regained ground simply as that which was overtaken at I. And for the Israelites, you know, that was, that was certainly true. That was, that was part of it. But I think that the real regained ground here, both for them and the then and there, and for you and I in the here and now, well, that's the renewed commitment of God's people to him. It's an act of obedience, a step of faith that will draw us back into the center of God's will. And folks, contrary to popular opinion, 
Happiest place on earth is not Disneyland. It's right smack dab in the center of God's will. But we need to be reminded constantly in times of both challenge and in times of victory that our real strength, our real source is God. Psalm 46.1, the sons of Korah wrote, God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10, Nehemiah said, do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Exodus 15.2, right after the Red Sea crossing and the destruction of Pharaoh's army, the people sang, the Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. So commitment to him in worship, commitment to his word, you know, that, that's part of what restores the ground that we previously lost because of defeat. Now, let me ask you a more personal question this morning. Have you recently suffered a defeat in your own life? Have you lost ground? Do you want to regain that lost ground? Recall God's plan, a plan that includes, includes no fear, no discouragement. Rejoice in God's provision. Remember God's praise, but then renew your promise. Now, as we study Joshua chapter 8, where's Jesus in all this? Well, I think we see him this way. God went before Joshua and the Israelites into the land. He showed his power to them so that they would trust in him. Well, when Jesus came into the world, he showed his power so that you and I would trust in him and receive salvation through him. Well, the book of Joshua basically is, is pointing us forward to a newer kind of deliverance, a much, much greater power, one that is great enough to save us forever. Did you know that the name Joshua, it means God is salvation? Well, guess what? The name Jesus is simply the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua. And that name Yeshua basically transliterates into English as Joshua. Yeshua means God is salvation or God saves. So just as in the old covenant, Joshua had led the people into the promised land. So with the new covenant through Jesus, Jesus will lead his people into eternal life. And I must ask, have you made that decision to trust him for eternal life? Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.